everyone. Welcome back to the Queen of Calm podcast. I'm your host, Paisley Haddad. So I hope everyone's having a great week, enjoying the summer sunshine, and using your PTO if you have it. But you're listening to a new episode of the Queen of Calm podcast. Now, before we jump into the episode, I just want to take a moment to share a few reminders with you all. So if you're not already following us on social media, follow us at Queen of Calm podcast on Instagram and at Queen of Calm pod on Twitter. Then if you're enjoying the Queen of Calm podcast and you want to let us know how you feel, head to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Finally, if you want to be on the Queen of Calm podcast, if you have a question, you have a question for one of my guests, you have a topic that you'd like discussed on the show, or if you just want to go back and circle back to a conversation that I've already chatted with a guest about on a previous episode, be sure to leave us a voicemail by heading to the link in our Instagram bio or to anchor.fm slash queen of calm podcast slash message and you could be on the queen of calm podcast. But as for today's industry insights, the topic of this episode is all about influencer marketing. So I just want to talk a little bit about the evolution of influencers, you know, how these influencers that are out there have gone from, you know, the evolution of those brand personalities that we saw in those traditional ads who are, you know, normally celebrities Um, You know, kind of similar to, you know, what we saw in the early 2000s with like those Food Network and HGTV personalities. You know, you saw Rachel Ray, you know, using EVOO on her show. And then you wanted to go out and buy EVOO in the supermarkets. And, you know, you saw Giada use a certain type of pasta and you wanted to go buy that as well. And that really translated into creating these, you know, brands and, you know, product lines from these personalities that are on HGTV and Food Network. And I think, you know, the, the term of influencer really started from them of, you know, building that influence within their audience of wanting to buy these products and use them in your own home and how you can use them in your own life and influencing people to, you know, make those changes in, you know, whatever they're trying to do, home improvement, crafting, any of that. So it's just been interesting to watch that evolve into what it is to what we know now, Um, you know, kind of in those 2010s, you know, seeing the makeup influencers bringing us behind the curtain, you know, showing these PR packages that they get from brands and how brand partnerships work. And, you know, I think brands from that point were like, oh my God, we have to get all these influencers, work with them all at once, you know, have the same group that's really blowing up, go to all these different events and different things. And I think it's really become more discerning in the industry of, you know, who they're working with. Are they really brand fans? Do they align with the brand messaging? Because that is so important, because as we've talked about on the show before, it's all about that brand authenticity when, you know, you're looking for these partners to work with. And I think that there's so many brands who do this well. But one that I want to shout out specifically today for today's industry insights is ColourPop Cosmetics, who is continually a leader in the you know influencer marketing world. They're always having this, you know, collaboration going on, whether it's with an influencer or whether it's with a top brand. And it's just been so great to watch, not only as a brand fan, but also as, you know, a communications professional to see, you know, these different tactics that they, you know, take part in through their communication strategies. So a recent campaign that they put out with an influencer specifically was the Jasmine Chiswell X ColourPop Cosmetics collaboration. And if you're not familiar with Jasmine, she is a TikTok influencer who originally got famous because she looks like Marilyn Monroe. She does her hair and makeup just like her, but she also just happens to live in Marilyn's old Hollywood home, which I think is super cool. She always would, she always does show the behind the scenes of, you know, living there, what they've found in the attic, you know, different historical moments. But she's also taken the reins of her brand and grown it to be more than just about Marilyn history. 
she's you know done hair and makeup doing you know hair and makeup by the decades and doing tiktok trends and showing her life as becoming a mother for the first time and with her husband so it's just been so interesting to watch her journey on tiktok evolve from what it originally was and so ColourPop took notice of this and they created a new collection with jasmine which is in the theme of marilyn monroe and you know that whole era of like the red lips and showing her you know in the looking like Marilyn Monroe and all the promotional pictures having that you know certain font that was from that time period and so I think this is a really smart campaign because you know they're able to really show their versatility as a brand you know being able to pivot to all these different you know brand partnerships and do amazing packaging and PR work and influencer work so hats off to the ColourPop team but also to Jasmine because she's really grown so much to this point to have this collection so hats off to everyone involved in that campaign But speaking more on, you know, the current influencer climate, you know, something I've been seeing as a makeup, you know, industry fan, but also just someone who's, you know, looking at that with that discerning eye of the communications lens is that, you know, more and more of these celebrity brands that come out with, you know, makeup products, they engage these group of influencers, they have these launch events. And a big trend that I've seen going around is these celebrities, you know, giving these influencers five minutes with them to do like a couple TikTok videos and interviews. And a lot of my favorite brands like Rare Beauty, Fenty Beauty, um, you know, Drew Barrymore's Flower Beauty have been doing this. And I just think it's kind of a little bit inauthentic to, or not authentic, I don't know, um, to be doing, you know, that sort of video. I mean, I think like people know that like, oh, they're in a line and they come up and they get five minutes to ask a question. Like, I think they could be using their time with these influencers much better using their creativity, you know, maybe scheduling a time for the celebrity to meet with, you know, five influencers at a time and they do like a a makeup challenge or something like that. I think there's just more authentic ways to be doing that. And I think that just plays into like the overall theme that we were just talking about of finding those right brand partners to partner with, you know, having those true brand fans, you know, coming out to these events and taking part in these, you know, campaigns. And I think a brand that does that really well, and I've said this before because I am a brand fan myself, it's Duncan Duncan, I should say. I was going back in the day to Dunkin' Donuts because they truly look for those brand fans. They look who's posting about Duncan. They they see, you know, what type of content they're putting out, how they can connect that to their own social media and influencer and marketing strategy. So it's just so interesting to watch brands like Duncan, you know, take that those strategies, you know, to the finish line. You know, they have the right brand partners, like they partnered with Zachariah. who is a TikTok influencer who was originally from Massachusetts. He recently just moved to New York, but he loves Duncan. He lives and breathes the Duncan brand. And so just partnering with those right influencers, I think is so important nowadays. And my guest today on today's episode, who I'll be sharing the interview with in a moment, she works for marketing for a cabinet company. And she'll explain how she has been able to utilize those home improvement influencers to really hone in on those, you know, influencer marketing tactics and really grow her marketing um, you know, work through working with these influencers and creating case studies and, you know, getting coverage in these top publications. She'll also chat about, you know, the differences between attending college in Canada versus the United States for communications. Um, she'll talk about her own career journey and her advice for the next generation. So be sure to stay tuned for the interview. You're not going to want to miss it. My next guest is an influencer marketing expert who also works as the marketing manager at New Cabinet Doors. Please welcome Terry Simone to the podcast. Welcome, Terry. So glad to have you on today. Thank you, Paisley. I'm super excited to be here. So why don't we get started with how you first got into marketing? 
Yeah, so I think that the first time I did a marketing analysis, I was probably eight years old. <laughs> I had gone and picked up the mail and come home and noticed that there was a flyer in it for a weight loss company of all things. And being the weird little eight-year-old that I was, I settled myself in with some chart paper and a marker and started to pick apart why their ad wasn't great. And <laughs> did this whole marketing analysis and presented it to my parents after dinner. And I was hooked. I didn't even know that what I was doing was marketing and my parents, I'm sure, were chuckling to themselves. And I just was really interested in how people are the way that they are and, you know, why we behave in certain ways and how we can act on that in ways to service people better. Um, I think that sort of that fascination and that curiosity, that little eight-year-old is still in there somewhere. And I think that having, being able to look at how, how people make decisions and being able to offer them something instead of just sort of sell something is really what makes me so passionate about marketing. And that little sort of noodle of interest just sort of drove me throughout uh, you know, grade school, high school, and then into choosing what, uh, what program I went into in university. That's, that's awesome. Wow. I love that story. I love how you've had that passion since the beginning. And so since that moment, and you said it's, you know, it's carried through, you know, now to your career, um, but going back to college or university, as you call it. Um, so what was your time like in college and how did that help you refine your career interest from that point? Yeah. So I, and for anyone listening, I am Canadian, so I'll say <laughs> university instead of college. Um, so I went to a really interesting program. Um, I went to the Ivy Business School at Western University, and Ivy does a really interesting method where you, it's called a, like a two-and-two two program. So you do two years of a major, and then you do two years at the business school, and then your two years that you're in the business school are very, very intense. So you can pick anything you want. We have people come in from engineering, from medical science. I chose to go into sociology. Um, I was super interested, again, in sort of understanding people and understanding groups and behaviors, more from a sociological perspective than a pure psychology perspective, but there was some psychology worked in there. And I spent two years really not doing anything on the business side at all and just learning strictly a social degree. And... Part of that was, you know, maybe I didn't want to go into business school and it gave me a bit of flexibility to figure it out while you're in that awkward first and second <laughs> year. And part of it was really to understand sort of what that passion was for understanding people. And so I went through those two years of sociology. Turns out I'm a business nerd. I was still super excited to go to Ivy as I had been leaving high school. And then third and fourth year was when I spent my time at Ivy. And it's a, an interesting program in that it is incredibly intense, but it's also super hands-on. Um, and I'm a very, I need to understand it and pick it apart and get into it and get my hands at it to, to learn. And so that was really one of the reasons I chose the program was that ability to look at real world situations and learn from past companies sometimes mistakes and sometimes, you know, things that went really well for them and be able to apply that in a practical sense. So, you know, we, we did case studies on everything from, you know, how to package, uh, I don't know, call it shampoo, how to, you know, label shampoo and make it something people want to sell 
everything to, you know, real world consulting competitions where you're, you know, being judged by people from Boston Consulting Group and you better pitch something good <laughs> because it really matters. So it was a, it was a really cool program. I, as you can tell, I'm obsessed with my program and will happily speak really excitedly about it. But I think for me, having that hands-on and case-based learning, I really don't think I would have fostered the same passion for marketing if I had gone to something that was more sort of textbooks and notes-based, just because of, again, that sort of human element and being able to bounce things off of your classmates or we all of the the classes aren't really lecture based it's actually you come in with your case prepared you sit down and it's a discussion so your professor is really guiding you know paisley what did you do and how would you have solved this problem and then someone else across the room is saying you know nope i would have done it this way and it really simulates how the real world works <laughs> which a lot of people sort of you know there's that struggle of do you, does what you learn in school translate into your job or into real life? And for me, it totally did. Even those people skills, you refine in that sort of pretend boardroom setting. I use every single day. And certainly that sort of drinking out of a fire hose experience of going <laughs> through the program helped me for, for working at a startup ultimately and, and joining the team at new. Well, that's awesome. And I love how they have you, you know, do those two years in a certain subject and then head on to the business, because I feel like I talk about so many times in this podcast with different guests about how, you know, sometimes it's hard and, you know, PR, like where I work to, you know, really have those kind of communications tactics translate into business terms and how to explain that to people you're working with who are more on that business side. So that is so valuable. And I definitely can attest to what you said as well about that hands-on experience, because I feel like everything that I learned while I was in college in the classroom was not like that hands-on exactly, but the things I did outside of the classroom with like, we had like a student run agency and like internships, that's where, you know, I got the, those hands-on experiences as well. And so definitely I can to attest to what you said, because, you know, I feel like once you graduate and you start working with clients, like it's like such a different experience of, you know, trying to figure out that relationship. And like you were saying, having like that, like boardroom setting. So definitely. Yeah, we, I, you saying that just made me think of one scenario in particular. We also worked with actors sometimes. And <laughs> I would say to anyone that's listening, if you ever have the opportunity to do improv or like work with sort of an improv group or with, with actors, and in, in my case was maybe a bit different, absolutely take it because there's something about things being so weird and uncomfortable and having to just sort of think on your feet and go with it that no matter if you go work for a startup or in you know, a huge corporation, you're going to use that. And one story in particular, <laughs> they actually brought in professional actors to practice communications with different personalities. <laughs> so we were in groups of 10 and the actor, you know, one person would have to deal with that actor and that actor was someone who doesn't pay attention and doesn't listen and, you know, gets up and walks around the room and is not listening to what you're trying to get them to do or, you know, one person flipped a switch and just got super angry. And there were like so many really, really diverse personalities. And that was one of the things that, although, you know, I don't deal with 10 personalities necessarily in a day, I think was such a cool thing to sit in on and then also have to deal with myself. Because it's one thing when you're in the safe space of school and you're trying to, you know, get an outcome, but it's another when you have that first, you know, difficult client or weird pitch or something that's going awry 
to maybe have had a little bit of that experience to get you started. <laughs> wow. I want to take that class. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a lot been, of fun. And it must've been fun for the actors as well. I'm, I could imagine them getting that call like, oh, we're going to do this class today and do all these different personalities. And it must've been so fun for them. They were, they were having the best time I could tell, but they were very <laughs> in character. <laughs> And so, you know, after your experience, you know, while you're in school and then post-graduation, what was your career journey like to your position now at New? Yeah, so I think I've had an interesting career journey. I think in a lot of professions, but probably particularly in marketing and PR, the journey is not at all linear and you're kind of constantly flexing your muscles in your field. And sometimes you don't even know that you're doing it. So sort of thinking back to all of the different pieces of the puzzle that led me to where I am today, you know, some of some of my quote unquote career experience wasn't even in what I knew as a job. You know, one thing was, um, and if you're listening and you're in marketing, this is a great test project to see if you really like marketing. I helped a family member who was getting ready for a renovation. Uh, we were selling off things, sort of downsizing the house. And ended up making through photography and descriptions, which if you're going to go into marketing, you need to know how to do those things. We ended up making almost $40,000 of profit of just stuff that was sitting around in the house and they kind of thought was junk. I thought it was just a fun way to help a family member. Little did I know I was working on my marketing skills. You know, when different like lockdowns hit, started a furniture flipping business. There's, there's all these sort of different components that you don't even realize you're using your skill set that all come full circle in really weird ways. And I think, especially when we look at, you know, internships and co-ops and all these sort of different summer roles when you're in school, there's so much focus on it being perfect. And it has to be the, you know, the firm you're going to go and work for or the exact role that you want the day you leave school. And I think that maybe my story is unique, but those experiences, even if they're not at the perfect firm, they're going to come back in ways that you would absolutely never expect. I had a particular summer internship that's hilarious, and you really can't ever take a role for granted. So I showed up at my first day of work, and I thought I was joining the marketing team, and I was all excited. <laughs> and I met my manager. I'd been hired through HR, so I hadn't met the, the manager. And the manager was in the software engineering and technology department. They didn't know that they had a summer student and I don't know anything about coding. Um, so somewhere something had gotten mixed up and I found myself working with a software engineering team and I was sort of a, a business analyst role. So communicating business needs back to the developers but I still had to know how to code. I didn't know how to code. <laughs> So, you know, learning on your feet, sort of running on the hamster wheel to get your legs under you. And what I learned in coding test scripts in that role, I actually am now using in my role as new <laughs> in managing our website, in looking at things that go on the back end, in being able to communicate with developers. And I would never have been able to tell you in that role, sort of panicking for several weeks that I did <laughs> not know how to do this job, that it would be so valuable for me to have done that, even if it was a mix up. Um, that was a, you know, maybe not the role that I thought I was getting, but an incredibly valuable experience. I worked in a data analysis role. So a mix of 
data analysis, data cleanup, basically preparing a company that had been in business for almost 50 years and had a 50-year-old POS system, basically, <laughs> into being able to go into creating an e-commerce store. So over the years, people had made different SKUs, things had been renamed 16 times, and they had this it's basically just garbled monster of product inventory. And it was, it was insane. <laughs> and I was brought in to basically comb through that and figure out how many SKUs this company actually had so that their stores could actually do inventory. So they could eventually transition that to offering e-commerce. And that was not necessarily a marketing-based role, but being able to crunch data like that and you know, work with store managers, work with vendors, call people who hadn't sold product to the company in 10 years and say like, hey, do we still order this from you? No, we don't. Great, cool. Uh, <laughs> super interesting role again, and not the you know perfect marketing job, but small team, tons of responsibility, and eventually prepare that company to launch a successful e-commerce business. So, you know, again, doesn't have to be the most shiny role. <laughs> you can be crunching numbers alone in a room, and it, it's it ends up really helping the business and and your own growth, and. We'll probably talk about this in a in a little bit, I'm sure, as it pertains to what exactly new does. But um, I actually ended up working at IKEA. Um, I sort of late high school had won a scholarship that IKEA was a sponsor for, and at the scholarship, sort they did sort of an awards dinner thing. Come off stage after getting our presentation. And there's a gentleman who's standing there and, you know, he says, are you Terry? And it's like, yeah, I don't know who you are. I'm in high school. I don't really know how to, you know, behave at these events. And he introduced himself as Stefan. That's all I knew. And he said, you know, I'd like you to join our team for dinner. And I thought he was just someone who was an organizer at this event. I, I didn't know anything. So I go back to the table and was like, you know, great, a cool sort of networking opportunity for <laughs> young high school me. And it turns out that I was sitting at the table with the senior leadership team of IKEA Canada, and that the gentleman who had greeted me off stage was Stefan Restrand, uh, who was the CEO of IKEA Canada at the time. <laughs> and they just invited me into their dinner, into their team. And that was such a cool and crazy experience. And, you know, had a, a few hours together learning and asking questions. And I just fell absolutely in love with the culture because I mean, that speaks a lot to a team to invite in a high school yeah. student <laughs> to join you and, and to just talk as if I was one of them. And so I had this extreme excitement over all things IKEA and I still do and ended up actually joining a pickup point. Um, I don't know if they rolled out pickup points over the U.S., but basically what a pickup point was, was a micro store. So we did everything. We did mostly sort of the design and planning things, um, returns. There was a limited amount of inventory that could be purchased there. I was hired in a returns role, and that is a very great way to learn things about a business very quickly. <laughs> it's with a huge line of people waiting for their money back. Uh, quickly learned that although I'm decent with unhappy people, I prefer more of a sales role. 
So ended up being trained on the sales floor. That eventually led to being trained as a kitchen designer through their team. And then I was pretty much full-time in kitchen sales and had no previous interior design training at all, um, but just absolutely loved everything about it. And what's interesting is I really don't think that it was necessarily kitchens that I loved as much as it's the people that I got to work with. And, you know, being able to have a client come in with a problem, with a specific budget, and we're working together and it's this really collaborative process to get the outcome that they didn't think was possible. That's what I adored. And I bring that with me today into this role that sort of people please also finding creative ways to get things done. And that ultimately was sort of the foundation of my kitchen background, which led me to where I am today. This is a roundabout way to answer your question, <laughs> but it's interesting, I think. And yes. it really just every single one of these roles that I've had has come full circle to my role at new. And I say this to friends and family and my team all the time, like, oh, we need such and such. Oh, I can do that because I did this here. And then everyone just looks at me funny because it's so weird how all these <laughs> things have come together. But in my current role, so I work um, as the head of marketing at New Cabinet Doors and I wear a lot of hats. So I do marketing. Um, I'm customer facing sometimes. I am PR facing. I work with SEO. We, I do all of our social media management. Everything from Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, TikTok. I deal with the paid spend side of things, influencer marketing. So the you know signing, sourcing, contracting, managing, all of the things that go into influencers. And then, you know, the PR side of things and then video content creation. I kind of do everything you could imagine that falls <laughs> under the umbrella of marketing. And... I adore it. I don't really particularly like to only do one thing all the time. So being able to do so many different things, I think is just the best part of my job. And I guess I should maybe explain what we do. That's probably helpful. <laughs> so I do all these fun things at a company that no one knows what it does. So new cabinet doors, essentially what we do is we are a provider of custom made cabinet doors. So cabinet doors for your kitchen, your bathroom, your laundry room, anywhere that you have a cabinet, we can make a door for it. And um, we launched in, when did we launch? During July of 2020, it's all a blur. Uh, so we're, we're a young company, we're uh, a startup. And we <laughs> really have learned a lot over the last two years. There's been obviously so many things going on, but I think when people think about cabinet doors, they don't particularly think of something that's exciting or they don't really think of sort of this sleek marketing machine. You kind of picture, you know, Bob the Builder coming in <laughs> to be a handyman and help you with something. So that's what's been really fun in this role is, you know, we are selling a product that's not really inherently exciting. But I think what is exciting, I mean, I think cabinet doors are exciting. Most people <laughs> don't. What is exciting, though, is what really we're selling. And that is affordable but luxury products and sort of the dream kitchen at a budget that you can handle 
and at a project that's a DIY project. So because we sell direct to consumers, you don't have to rip out your whole kitchen and spend six months eating takeout and have a $100,000 budget because really who has that often these days, but you can reface your kitchen, which is taking off all your cabinet doors, swapping them out for new ones. They're custom made, so they're going to fit exactly what you have. And it's pretty DIY friendly. I've hung cabinet doors. We've coached people through who have never held a screwdriver or power drill <laughs> in their life. And you're getting that, you know, $100,000 kitchen that you see in a magazine at an absolute fraction of the cost and you're doing it yourself. And that sort of idea is what is so exciting and is, you know, what I'm so passionate about in our business, although I am also passionate about cabinet doors. It really is being able to sort of find that problem or find something that's not really being talked about in the same way and deliver a service and an answer that people don't even know exists. So a big part of our our company and my role is education. So it's not just trying to get you to buy those cabinet doors. (laughs) It's explaining that this is even an option for you. Because most people don't come in knowing that this is what they could possibly do. They are looking at, okay, I need to renovate my kitchen. And oh my goodness, I don't have the budget for it. So that's where it gets really exciting is being able to be part of those aha moments and really sort of be a part of people realizing that they can get the look that they want at the price that they can afford. And so that's, that's like a really roundabout answer to your question, but that's what I do. That's what we do as a company. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that point of, you know, not discrediting any of those experiences that you go through, you know, on your career journey, because it is so important to, you know, learn those little things along the way. And especially from like a PR perspective, I've, and or even marketing too, I feel like we always, you know, see something that we're working with clients and they'll mention something and they're like, well, that's not too important. You're like, yes, it is. Like, that would be a great like pitch angle or something that we could work with. Like, there's always so many different avenues to really, you know, get that messaging out there. Um, and also with communications, like you were talking about too, we have so many different ways to, you know, do our job. There's so many different industries we're involved in. And especially with, you know, what the work you do now with your job and, you know, having your hand in all these different projects, I feel like there's so many things that, you know, we need to be versed on nowadays. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And also you segued really well into my next question um, when you were talking about, you know, giving your customers that option of knowing that, you know, doing your own cabinet doors is, you know, an option. Um, so from your perspective in marketing, you know, what can marketers be doing to help brands reach these new audiences? Yeah, I think a really big part of that is to have, well, to have two things, to have good analytics and to have good data. And I think I'm sure you come across this a lot in your role too, that, you know, we can, we can use intuition and that gets us pretty far. We can use qualitative analysis and that's also pretty great. But a lot of the time, what sets businesses or marketers or professionals apart is being able to use good data and analyze that data to actually mean something for them. And, and I never would have thought that I would be the one saying that because I am not a quantitative <laughs> person to save my life. So if anyone's listening, thinking, oh gosh, I have to know, you know, I have to be amazing at Excel to do marketing. You need to get there eventually, <laughs> but it's really, it's really important. And there's ways to make it accessible. So I think that there's, there's a lot of things that go into actually finding and reaching those audiences, but sort of 
in the implementation side of things, you're going to test, you're going to iterate, you're going to test again, you're going to iterate, and you're going to be stuck in that loop until you find something that works. So using your data and sort of using those analytical skills, you, you really have to try stuff sometimes. You're not always going to have that perfect ad campaign or that perfect answer from the start. You know, that could be your ad graphics, that could be the influencer you work with or your web content. But I think being comfortable with testing and iterating is really, really, really important. But I think to find who those new audiences are, and it applies to, to our business and it applies to many businesses, is look at who your competition is targeting. And, you know, sometimes this is a matter of a, an afternoon and a couple of cups of tea and just sort of taking a step back and just really slowing down to look at it. Because I think it's really easy to get hung up on, you know, I'm looking at something and in 10 seconds, I'm trying to extrapolate an answer. That's not necessarily the case. So, you know, who is your competition targeting? Age, gender, geography, income, all of those things. Is there a market that's not being served? Is there a voice that's not being listened to? How is that competitor displaying their product or their message? And does it actually appeal to their target demographic? If it does, if they're, you know, they've identified their target market and they're just selling to that group, great, good job for them. In the case of cabinet doors, you know, we see rectangles <laughs> being sold primarily to men, primarily to, you know, contractors, industry, tradespeople, a little bit of homeowners and DIYers. And that's a large part of the majority of businesses. That's who they're selling to because that is the audience that they know is there, has the money to spend and has the interest. But who's not being talked to in that communication? Does a 35-year-old female who has Pinterest boards afoot <laughs> and you know spends Sundays looking at new design ideas, does that make her excited to look at this very bland rectangle and, you know, flashing banners that say, buy now, get $15 <laughs> off. Like, is, is that actually successful for that target group? Might be fantastic for who that company's targeting, but does it work for a different demographic? And you can, you can create these personas and almost, you know, check, check the persona against the message if you're trying to figure a different group. So, you know, come up with a couple of different combinations of, of those things, age, gender, income, geography, look at sort of your primary competitors and see if I were that person, would I buy it? And I think that's a good way. And it's, it can be a fun exercise. It doesn't have to be that scary. Start to get your, your feet wet in terms of where there are gaps, because there's always a gap. Sometimes the market's more crowded than others, but there's always a gap and you can always find a little sliver of a way to do it better than someone else. Maybe you can't compete on price, Maybe you can compete on service. There's there's so many different ways you can position yourself, but it's really important, especially in startup world, to not get discouraged if you think one way of going at it or one customer is for you, and then it turns out it's not. You got to be ready to pivot. You know, I think if in this exercise it emerges that all of your competitors are targeting the same group of people, look at why that is. <laughs> you know, this is where the analysis and data side comes into it. There's lots of amazing, you know, free resources out there that tell you by state or by province or geography income levels. You know, there's 
the really boring government website, they have so many amazing pieces of information. They are not the most exciting to look for, but they're great. And sort of dig into those things and layer those things in. Like, is, is this way of marketing this product to this group? Is that the way it's always been done? Do those people buy at a higher rate? Do they have more money to spend? And I think it's important, although scary, don't assume that just because all of the competition is targeting a group that you also need to jump into the pool with them. You know, there could be a whole audience that nobody has found or been brave enough to go after <laughs> who could benefit from your product. And I think, you know, that's in a lot of ways kind of where, where we sit as a business is going after a bit of a different group with a different product and a different offering. And we fill that sort of couple of slivers that we found in a whole bunch of different ways. And then come back, test, iterate, figure out how you need to talk to those people and just keep trying. And you're going to get stuck in that circle and it's going to be great eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And it's definitely become even more interesting too with, you know, TikTok and these different brands, you know, trying to reach all these different audiences at once. Like, you know, I've seen like the Duolingo bird. I'm sure we've all seen them on TikTok, you know, making a splash with Gen Z and like they're spending zero marketing dollars. And I just think that's like so crazy that they're just utilizing that power of Gen Z. And so that goes into my next question too, because um, I want to talk about influencer marketing. So I know that you, you work with influencers in the past. So how can influencers be used to really build up campaigns and help, you know, brands reach those audiences through the influencer route as well? Yeah. So, and I can give a couple examples. I, I work with influencers every day. Um, so people who may be sort of names that are known uh, would be Angela Rose Home. She's a phenomenal DIY and design personality. She's fearless. She builds things from the ground up with her own two hands. And it's it's just incredible to watch. We've worked with Courtney Wilson, um, who's probably pretty well known from HGTV. And others and people I can't talk about yet and sort of everything in between. You know, we've worked with accounts that have over a million followers and we've worked with accounts that have five or 10,000 followers. So I have a bit of a unique perspective in that I've worked with all kinds of different groups, but I have also worked with influencers and talent when we were, for lack of better words, a nobody. So, you know, not having a proven track record of working with influencers or not being a brand name that people know you know, I'm not Ikea. I'm not coming in and saying like, hey, you're going to represent this huge brand that everybody knows. It's been a really interesting way to kind of dig into and learn how you actually go about these things in a manner that's not only successful, but different. Because at the core of influencers and influencer marketing is you can't ever lose sight of the fact that these are people. You know, we can crank PPC spend, we can work on our SEO. There's, there's things you can do that aren't as human, but the beauty of influencer marketing is that these are real people. And maybe you can tell from my chatting, I'm a huge people person. So this gets me really excited, but it also is where I think a lot of brands drop the ball in treating these influencers like machines and in scripting and, you know, having these enormous contracts and these really overwhelming approaches to something that's inherently human. You know, we as consumers like influencers and follow influencers because we feel like we can relate to them. And as soon as someone, you know, flips the switch and you can, you can tell that they're reading a very scripted campaign or 
it's just not their normal content, something feels disconnected, you as a consumer are kind of just going to turn off from listening to that. So not only has the brand sort of taken it out of that influencer's niche and their voice, but you might have just made people deaf in your message because they're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. You know, that's not the, the influencer that I know. So I think, you know, influencer marketing can get a bit of a reputation for sort of being the wild west. You know, people are asking whatever rates they want and it's, you can't measure anything and it's, you know, it's, it's chaos out here, but I really don't think that's the case. And I think for any, you know, young marketers, young entrepreneurs that might be discouraged from trying out influencer marketing where you have senior management who's maybe not on board, that's okay if people aren't always comfortable with it, but there's ways to test it that are safe for you and your business to really start to see those results. And unfortunately, it's going to come back to data. So a couple of tools that are really interesting here that are are helpful in, in the analysis side of who you partner with, because most companies, unless you work for an enormous multinational, you're not going to have an unlimited budget. You know, you might have a certain amount of money that you have to spread across your paid spend, you know, your influencer marketing, your SEO initiatives, video content. And you can get a lot of value for your dollars with influencers, but you can also blow it pretty quickly. So a couple of tools that are really helpful. There's some free ones and some paid ones. There's one called Ninja Analytics that I think might have been renamed to not just analytics, but I like the Ninja. Um, <laughs> that's a totally free tool. You can type in an influencer profile and it gives you sort of a good high level overview of different metrics that are important to you as a brand. So, you know, things like engagement, right? How past content has performed. It's got some of those really good nuggets in there. And then there's tools like Isia. I think it's pronounced Isia or Isaiah. Um, and clear. Those are paid. They have different levels of payment, but those are huge mines of data for not only finding influencers, but analyzing them. So, you, you know, you need to look at engagement rate. You need to look at audience. You know, I think in some of our planning as a business of who actually we want to partner with, you can work with the Kardashians. I mean, we can't, we're a startup. But you, you could work with someone like that and spend millions of dollars and never see a single sale. Or you could work with someone who's really, really, really niche, forget how big their account is, and you could see such a huge impact from that campaign. And there's so many components that go into working with influencers, whether they're you know bigger or smaller accounts, that you can leverage content and they can also make you great content that fits their audience. So you need to make sure that it has that authentic tone of voice. Work with them. You know, they are people, they have audiences that they know inside out and backwards and you as a brand, you don't. So finding someone who's aligned with the type of product that you sell, who has a tone of voice that talks to the audience that you wanna talk to, and who has a following, I think, that is specific to your product, especially if you're a young company, is so important. You know, if we went to someone who is, I don't even know, we'll use the Kardashians because they're a good example. <laughs> if they start talking about cabinet doors, that's like, what? You're, you know, you're going to have whiplash being like, what is the, what's going on? But if you go to someone like Angela Rose 
who is a DIY designer, this is our niche. The people are there to learn tutorials. That is going to be such a successful campaign because those people are there for that content. And they trust that influencer. They're ready to buy the things that influencer tells them about. And it's like a friend telling you about something, right? That's really at the core of influencer marketing is you have a rapport with, with these influencers and you trust them. So as a brand, we have to do everything we can to protect that. So keeping their voice, you know, working into a project that they have that their audience is excited about, or, you know, they've talked about for months or years and not doing a product placement, you know, something on a countertop that's a photo and then you're never talked about again. And that's been so impactful for us is being able to craft those stories and see those storylines play out, especially because we're something that you don't wake up one day and decide you're buying cabinet doors. You need to kind of learn and get familiar and comfortable. So, you know, especially in our business, there's a barrier to people thinking, can I really do this? And, you know, oh my gosh, I'm not sure if I can. And watching someone display that to you, I mean, that that's going to sell you cabinet doors better than any ad that I could make up will, is, is someone you trust saying, watch me, we're going to do it together and it's going to be great. Well, yeah, I, I love how you brought up that human aspect because I feel like this whole season of my podcast, every guest that I've talked to, we've talked about being targeted and building that connection because, you know, after, well, we're still on the tail end of the pandemic, but, you know, during the pandemic, like we were really looking for that human connection and, you know, trying to make those relationships. And I think that's why, you know, TikTok and all these different influencers really took off throughout the pandemic who were really like these ordinary people, like you were saying. Um, like, cause I feel like I, I go on TikTok and like watch someone unbox their groceries. Like it doesn't have to be anything groundbreaking. Um, so I definitely yeah. agree on that. Um, and also that kind of goes with what I talk about with podcasts as well as, you know, sometimes people think like podcasts is all about like the listener numbers and how many people are looking at it, but podcasts are so niche. Like I'm sure like only like communication students and different people who are in communications would listen to this podcast like this wouldn't be like a national podcast but I think it's much more impactful like to talk about topics that are in that niche so I'm glad that you brought that up as well and so um, I also wanted to ask you about case studies because I feel like um, that goes along with influencers as well so for listeners can you kind of explain how you know you leverage those case studies to make you know publicity for your brand yeah so and this really kind of comes into the PR side of what I do so with, with primarily our influencer partnerships, we've done it a little bit for internal projects, but really with influencer partnerships, I kind of think of a case study as almost like a diary of your project. So it's a really elaborate diary. <laughs> so it's a, it's a mix of a project brief and a scrapbook and all of these things coming together into one. So at least from our business side, a case study is really summarizing a, let's call it kitchen project. Kitchens are just the easiest to talk about. So a good case study would include a whole bunch of different components. There's a summary of who the talent is. You know, it's Terry Simone, the influencer, and, you know, where this project took place. So location can be important because some PR pages only want to write about, you know, West Coast Cali and look at all this, you know, California casual. You can't really pitch something that was maybe Midwestern the same way and it maybe has different design style. So locations is important. 
a quick little bio or sort of write up of who the talent was or who the influencer was. You know, this is a great spot to put in links if they've got the blog, if they've been featured on television, something that's, you know, I'd say no more than 200 word description of the talent, but gives you all the, you know, really good juicy stuff about who they are. A description of the room or the project type. So in this case, it would be a kitchen, but a, a little bit of information, you know, is this a condominium? Is this a project they did for a client? Is this their personal home? Especially when we work with celebrity talent, this could be their own home. And sometimes press adores that because, you know, oh my goodness, who used your doors in their kitchen? Wow. Or is this for, you know, for television, for something else? That's important. We like to talk about the client's vision and their needs for functionality. So, you know, sort of take yourself a step back before the project started and what was really, what did they need? What did they want out of this project? We put that in there because when you write these case studies, often you have the luxury of looking back, but it's important to consider what did you solve for them and sort of how did you get where you are at the end. Uh, styles and colors. So in, you know, in our case, what cabinet doors? The press needs to know. They might want to talk about gray kitchens or they might want to talk about pink kitchens. That's important. You know, key points or standout features. Did they put in this really cool piece of marble in their countertop or did they use this bespoke appliance? It doesn't necessarily have to be about your specific brand, but anything that might be sort of buzzy or exciting for a press, I include that in that section. We'll talk about different testimonials or quotes. You know, nothing speaks for your product, like having someone who's happy about it give some testimonials. So any of our talent that we work with, if it's something that they're open to and they're open to publication, um, then we'll certainly gather a couple of quotes. Sometimes I jump on a call and I'll just talk to them like we're chatting today. Sometimes it'll be via email, but getting some commentary about the product from the talent. And then of course the good old before and after, everybody loves a reveal. If there's video content, then we include that too. But a lot of the time press is more interested in images. Um, video is getting there, but especially in interior design, that before and after, nothing quite beats it. And that's, that's kind of all packaged up into you know, a professional looking document that can be used internally, that can be used in pitching out to the media. It can be part of a library of projects when you're looking for you know, reactive press of here's publications who need kitchens that fit this niche. You can go there really quickly and just pull all that information, but it's a really great way to sort of dump content into somewhere that you can come back to it. And if you worked with 30 influencers in the span of a year, you just might not know the details that well. And it's good to have all of that while it's fresh and, you know, documented, get your talent on board. Um, typically in case studies, this is something that we have the ability to pitch out to the press. So, you know, that's a pretty involved document that I just described. That is because we would be working with someone who's open and excited about that going out to the media. If you don't have those same rights, you know, and there's different content rights, then that might be scaled back. Um, but that's sort of our best case scenario where we can really just go out with a really exciting project to the media whenever the media is interested. Yeah, it's, it's definitely always so fun when I see those articles that have like those fun headlines, like you were talking about, like the West Coast style kitchen and like you get to see the pictures. So I'm sure that is such like a fun aspect of, you know, working with talent and then seeing, like you said, that before and after. 
Um, and so you've shared so many great tidbits throughout the episode so far um, and great tips for listeners. And so I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for college students who are studying marketing and even those young, you know, um, you know, young professionals or people who are about to graduate in May and head out into the marketing world? Yeah, I think I mentioned one of them earlier, but get good with data. <laughs> you know, take an Excel course if your program doesn't teach it or doesn't teach it well. Practice, practice, practice. Model things, forecast things, especially in the ever-changing world of digital marketing. It's really easy to get stuck in gray area. It's really easy to get decisions held up because you just don't have an answer that's quantitative but you have a, you know, I think, or I hope, get good with data. Might not be the most fun part of your job, but it's gonna be important. So anything you can do to educate yourself or flex those muscles will really take you a long way. I think, you know, read, <laughs> read, read, read. I'm sure you do this all the time, Paisley. You know, you have to be up to date on product and feature releases, algorithm changes. If you are on sort of the cusp of learning about these things as platforms are talking about them, you're going to be so much better poised to integrate them into your strategy than if you're playing catch up. And I think, you know, <laughs> we all have only so many hours in the day, but even if you set aside 15, 30 minutes while you're making coffee at the end of the day, just educate yourself. And I think as, you know, listeners venture out, maybe this is their first job in the industry. Maybe this is a summer internship. It's okay if it's not perfect. I mentioned this before, but don't stress and don't get hung up on finding that perfect job because you might not. And that's okay. You can look for jobs that have mentorship, that have different training, look for things that give you independence. It's a lot better for your personal growth and your long-term career to be able to say, I did that, or I spearheaded that. than you know, I sat in the corner while 40 other people worked on that thing. So even if it's not your dream job, if, but if there's a little nugget in there, don't get discouraged. And I think a really big one for probably first-time jobs, but maybe internships as well, is if you're the youngest person in the room, do not, do not let that scare you into sitting there silently. This is so hard, and I think this can be hard as women, but I think it's hard for everyone when we're fresh out of school, that we kind of feel like we don't have the expertise or the experience to really voice something or speak up. And... I think we need to do away with that. You know, it's it's scary for sure, but having confidence in yourself and in your education and in your ideas and speaking up when you see a solution or you have an idea to bring to the table and speaking with conviction, the right team will welcome that and they will embrace your thinking. And that's going to take you so much farther above your peers than the people who sit in the corner and take notes. Take your notes, because that's what you're there for, but don't be afraid to speak up and don't let your age get in the way. Well, thank you so much for that advice. I'm sure listeners will love that. I thought it was great advice as well. And I love that point you just brought up. Well, I love them all, but the one you just brought up about, you know, not being afraid to, you know, be the youngest person in the room and be sharing your opinions. And I think that's such an important part of the process. And I think that's something that's so, you know, transitional that we're seeing in our industry right now, because, 
you know, we have so many more, you know, resources available to us as we graduate college and get those first jobs and being, you know, in a virtual setting for the past two years, like we've had to adapt and change. And so I think that, you know, the younger professionals are bringing those new things to the table. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that as well. Um, and so to close out the episode, um, this is a question that I end all of my episodes on. I'm a huge fan of Sophia Amoruso. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, um, but she coined the phrase girl boss and she built the whole empire on it. So I love to end the episode by asking about a woman who inspires you because I love women's empowerment on this show. I love having women on to tell their stories like yourself. And so I'm wondering who is your favorite girl boss? And if you have more than one, that's totally okay because we've had that in the past. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like I have a lot of women that I look up to, but I think for this one, someone, and maybe she's not that well known just generally or maybe in the US as well, but her name's Lisa Lesson, and she is the president at FedEx Canada. She may be FedEx Global now, but I think she was just FedEx Canada. She lost her husband when he was 38 years old, and she had two young kids, and she had this really, really tragic loss, and she is just the epitome of taking something that's hard and horrible and miserable and becoming a light for other people. And she prides herself on open communication, on work-life balance, on manifesting positivity for yourself and for others. She's all about a PSP model, which is people service profit, I believe which the philosophy there is if you treat your people well and you respect your people, they in turn will provide good service to your customers. That's exceptional, which then gives profit back to your shareholders. And then you reinvest that back in your people. And I just admire so many things about her leadership style and having a really sort of anti-bureaucratic approach to leadership where you know, she goes out in FedEx trucks and she does deliveries sometimes and you're never better than anyone, but you can lead with confidence and with compassion and we can be human. You know, I think that's maybe the moral of the story of this podcast is it's okay <laughs> to bring a little bit of yourself to your job, a lot of yourself and, you know, embrace that and embrace that about your teams and celebrate that we're all different and we all have different perspectives and things we bring to the table. And when we work in a way that's collaborative and positive, it's going to take your business and yourself so much farther than if we're competitive or, you know, putting people into silos. So Lisa Lisson from FedEx. She's my favorite girl boss. <laughs> well, she definitely sounds like a girl boss and is a girl boss. And I say this in every single one of my episodes, but I always learn about someone new. So after this, I'm going to have to go follow Lisa on like LinkedIn and wherever she's on social media because she sounds amazing. And Terry, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was such a pleasure to chat with you and to hear about all your experiences and the tips you shared. So thank you so much. Thank you, Paisley. This was a joy to be a part of. So thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Did you enjoy this episode of the Queen of Calm podcast? Well, head to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Do you want to be on the Queen of Calm podcast? Head to the link in our Instagram bio or to anchor.fm slash queenofcompodcast slash message to leave us a voicemail that could potentially be used on the show. And finally, if you're not already, follow us on social media at Queen of Calm Podcast on Instagram and at Queen of Calm Pod on Twitter. Join us next week as we celebrate more women in communications.